Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're turning back to Mark's Gospel. And tonight we're looking at Mark chapter 15. You'll find our Bible reading on page 852 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Page 852. Uh, we're reading Mark 15, verses 1 to 20. And this is the account of Jesus being delivered to Pilate, and then Jesus being uh, delivered to be crucified. So Mark 15, beginning at verse 1, it's page 852 of the Pew Bibles, and this is God's word to us. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail the king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 15. Uh, you'll find it really helpful to have Mark 15 open in front of you so you can follow along uh, with what I'm saying. Uh, as I've mentioned last week, uh, these sermons in the lead up to Easter are really going to be a little bit more devotional. We're really just immersing ourselves in the, in the final few days of Jesus' life and uh, that'll be helpful for us as Easter comes uh, just around the corner. Uh, you'll find Mark 15 on page 852 of the Pew Bibles and as you're turning that up let's pray for a moment together. Lord, we've been singing about the power of your cross and we realize that it is through the cross that we stand forgiven. And we pray that as we edge our way closer to the moment when Jesus was put on the cross, that you would speak to us through your word, that you'd help us to understand it and that you would come by your spirit and point us to our precious savior. 
We thank you so much for all that he's done. And we pray that you would warm our hearts as we look at this story together. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the best things about reading a book are the detailed descriptions of characters who have a significant part in the story. The best writers will give you details that impact the story in unthinkable ways and they'll help you to imagine a specific person or a scene so much so that you begin to feel part of the story. Uh, I had a birthday a few weeks ago and before it I was asked that age-old question, what do you want for your birthday? And because it wasn't a big one, I knew what my answer was. I, I keep a running list of books that I want to get, and I picked a few from the list. And one of my picks was J.R.R. Tolkien's set, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. I've seen the films, but I've never read the books, and I've always wanted to read the books because Tolkien was a Christian of some variety, and he had some sort of influence on C.S. Lewis. Tolkien and Lewis were friends, and they influenced each other in different ways. Anyway, started the first book, The Hobbit, this week because... I finished the biography of that famous motorbike racer that I mentioned last week. And Tolkien is a great writer. He gives really detailed descriptions of characters who have a significant part in the story. Let me give you an example. In The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, there's a character called Gollum. And he's a baddie, and there are some slithers of goodness in him, but he's mostly a baddie. He features in the first book, and this is how Tolkien introduces him to his readers. He writes this. Deep down... Here by the dark water lived old Gollum, a, sl a small, slimy creature. I don't know where he came from, nor who or what he was. He was Gollum, as dark as darkness, except for two big, round, pale eyes in his thin, fa thin face. He had a little boat, and he rowed about quite quietly in the lake. He paddled it with large feet dangling over the side, but never a ripple did he make. Not he. Now you may be thinking, where is this going? Tol Tolkien's description of Gollum sets him up to be a villain, but there's a depth to his description. He's small and slimy, meaning he's not someone that you want to associate with. He rows his boat, but he doesn't make any ripples, meaning that he's sneaky. And he's dark as darkness, meaning we won't be able to trust him when he appears in the story. The best writers will give you details that impact the story in unthinkable ways and they'll help you to imagine a specific person or scene so much so that you begin to feel part of the story. It's always worth us remembering that God is an author. He's the author of life in that he created everyone and everything, but he's also the author of a book, the Bible. And as we approach Mark 15 tonight, as we begin Three Days That Changed the World Part 2, we're going to see details about characters who impact the final days of Jesus. Uh, last time as we began this series, we looked at the religious trial of the Lord Jesus. He was hauled before the Jewish religious authorities who found him guilty. His trial was a shambles, as we saw, unreliable witnesses, contradictory accounts, it almost descended into a farce, but they got what they needed. Jesus found guilty on the charge of blasphemy. Uh, we also looked at Peter's heartbreaking denial of Jesus and of how we so easily stand alongside Peter in terms of our denial of Christ. Th this evening, we're moving on in the story. And as a writer, Mark keeps his material moving. He bangs out the detail, so much so that at times it's hard for us to draw breath. You'll see in verse 1 that Mark gives us a timestamp. 
He says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now this is Mark's summary of the final verdict of the Jewish trial. The most powerful members of the council had already reached their verdict and there were no more doubts after what Jesus had said to the high priest. They still needed a formal verdict though, but that only required sunrise and a quorum, a representative number of the Sanhedrin. The final judgment of of verse one has an air of legality that the earlier verdict didn't have. And the appearance of legality is important because the Jewish leaders want to win the battle of public opinion. The religious leaders get moving as soon as it's morning, as soon as the sun rises. And I find it interesting that the timestamps given to us in the Gospels are quite loose. So it doesn't say at 6.23 the Sanhedrin passed their final judgment because it doesn't really matter what time it actually happened. It happened and that's what's important. The religious leaders are in a rush because they know they need to get this sorted as soon as possible in order to avoid any civil disturbance. Now remember, it's Passover, the biggest festival for the Jewish people. The religious trial is over, and now Jesus is bumped into the hands of Pontius Pilate. Despite the fact that the Sanhedrin had executed Jesus to death, it didn't have the legal authority to actually execute Jesus. The Jews were living under subjection to the Romans, and in order to maintain control and civil order, the Romans had reserved the right to dispense capital punishment. So their decision has to go to another court. And it's to this other court that we read of in Mark 15, 1 to 20. If the end of chapter 14 tells us about Jesus' religious trial, the the opening part of chapter 15 tells us about his irreligious trial. What we're going to do this evening is to continue to walk our way through the three days that changed the world. And we're going to highlight the characters involved, what they do, what they say, in order to build up a picture of what happens. And towards the end, we'll finish with some heart applications just like last week. We've got four characters in this passage and I've summarized them all with words beginning with R. We're going to see Rome, the rabble, the religious leaders, the robber and the rescuer. We're putting the rabble and religious leaders together. So we've got four. So we're going to start with with Rome. And this is three days that changed the world, part two. First character then is Rome. And more specifically, it's the Roman ruler of the day, Pontius Pilate. It's likely that Pilate heard his most difficult cases in the morning and Jesus is brought to him, bound and all, even though there was really no need for any of that. A little bit of historical info on Pilate will be helpful at this point. It was the Roman custom to appoint governors over lands conquered by the legions, the army. Pilate was the fifth governor of Judea He held the office for 11 years from AD 26 to 37 and he was the longest serving governor of the region. Now being governor in Judea wasn't a great gig. It was one of the lowest rungs on the ladder in terms of making your way up the the politics of Rome. So think about it in geographical terms. Rome is the capital of Italy and say Italy's here and it's the center of the empire. All decisions that affect the empire are made in Rome. Judea is way over here, way, way, thousands of miles away, an obscure province that nobody knows anything about. That Pilate was governor of Judea for 11 years isn't a huge endorsement of his political abilities. One person I read this week, 
and this is a terrific insult, they said they called Pilate a third-rate Roman politician. A third-rate Roman politician, and that's probably what he was. But, but, but even though his career didn't quite match his ambitions, he was inflexible, stubborn, cruel, and perceptive. And we see all of those characteristics in this passage. The Jewish leaders know that Pilate doesn't care much about the theological charges of blasphemy that mean so much to them. He doesn't care about any of that. They know that they have to emphasize the political charges. They know they have to present Jesus as a rival to Caesar. That's reflected in Pilate's first question to Jesus in verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate only cares about determining if Jesus is a threat to Roman imperial power. Mark only gives us a brief answer from Jesus. You have said so. But other gospel writers fill in the picture a little bit. John specifically provides details about the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. The result of that conversation is that Pilate makes a quick assessment of Jesus based upon his demeanor, appearance, attitude, and answers, and he concludes that he's not guilty. Pilate was inflexible. He didn't usually just do what his subjects wanted him to do. He doesn't just fall into line with the Jewish authorities. In fact, if they said black, he would say white just to irritate them. With Jesus not worrying him in any significant way, Pilate decides that he should send him back to Herod. Now Luke alone records Jesus before Herod, but before long he's back before Pilate. And Pilate comes to the same conclusion as before, not guilty. Listen to what Pilate tells the Jews in Luke 23, 15 and 16. He says, Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate is inflexible and stubborn. He doesn't get the Jewish opposition to Christ and he's prepared to not put Jesus to death out of stubbornness. They're saying black, he's saying white. They're wrong, he's right, and he's the governor, so they have to do what he says. But Pilate was also cruel, and you get a sense of that from Luke 23. He plans to punish Jesus, rough him up, teach him a lesson, and then let him go. History tells us that Pilate put down several insurrections or protests by the Jews in brutal fashion. Sometimes he deliberately provoked them, deliberately wound them up, and then violently oppressed them. Once he built an aqueduct that ran for 23 miles and brought water into Jerusalem. That was the good news. The bad news was that he confiscated the money from the temple, from the Jews, in order to build it. Mark keeps the action moving, though, so we're going to stick with his account. As well as being inflexible, stubborn, and cruel, Pilate is perceptive. He perceives that the religious leaders are envious of Jesus. You see that in verse 10. But Pilate sees something in their behavior to suggest to him that they're jealous of Christ. He might not have, not, he might not have made it to the big time politically, but he's able to read people. He might be governor of a far-flung far province, but he has some wits about him. And the perceptive part of his character brings him to a possible solution to this whole situation. A custom had developed whereby the Roman governor would release a prisoner each Passover. Pilate probably used this tradition to ease tensions and ease the anti-Roman sentiments. When the crowd comes before him to hear who he's going to release, Pilate clearly assumes that the crowd will choose Jesus over Barabbas. And as we come to the custom of releasing a prisoner, 
So we move on to our next character. We go from Rome to the robber. Mark tells us that Barabbas committed murder in the insurrection and the other gospel writers fill in the gaps. Barabbas was a notorious criminal who had committed robbery, according to John 18.40, as well as insurrection and murder. He possibly belonged to one of the, the, the rural guerrilla groups that planned missions on the Romans and were popular among the common people. In short, Barabbas was a really bad man. A really, really bad man. And Pilate offers the crowd a choice between two prisoners. One will be released, one will be killed. He offers Jesus and he offers Barabbas. The whole scene is just littered with irony. Pilate offers the people a man who wanted to give them political freedom and he offers them a man who could actually give them spiritual freedom. Now, Barabbas doesn't have a speaking part. None of the Gospels record anything that he says. Presumably, he was there with all of this happening, but even that's hard to determine. My question on Barabbas is, what did he think of everything that happened that day? Because he goes free. He's a robber. He's a murderer. He's basically a first century terrorist. And he walks. He goes free. Someone else who is innocent takes his place. What did he think about that? Did he just rub his hands, run out of the room, run home, and then start planning his next operation? Or did he stop and see and understand the magnitude, the, the symbolism of what had happened to him? A properly guilty man was released in place of a properly innocent man. The Bible is silent on what he thought. We're not told anything. What we are told is that the crowd, with the help of the religious leaders, call for Barabbas' release. And with that, we're on to our third R, the rabble and the religious leaders. To Pilate's irritation, the Jewish leaders incite the crowd to ask for the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Verse 11 tells us, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Now you often hear it said that the crowd of Palm Sunday changed their minds on Jesus very, very quickly. But a more careful reading of the Gospels, I think, suggests that the Palm Sunday crowd is different to the crowd here. Let me explain. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was surrounded by people making their way to Passover. People who were probably from the same region, Galilee. He was given a hero's welcome to a new city by his own people, people who were traveling with him. But by Good Friday morning, the crowd is different. It's a Jerusalem crowd, the city slickers. And they have no desire to see Jesus released, especially when their religious leaders lean on them. We're not told what, who, who, the, who the religious leaders, uh, we're not told how the religious leaders stir up the crowd or what they say, but, but it's likely that they spread the charge of blasphemy. I, I, even those in the crowd who were inclined to trust Jesus over the religious leaders would have been reluctant to support a man guilty of blasphemy. Once the Jewish leaders got the ball rolling on inciting the crowd, it became an easy task to maintain the mob mentality and fury. That's the thing about crowds. They're very, very easily led. You just imagine someone saying, well, everyone is against Jesus. I suppose I better join in. I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of history. Pilate puts the prisoner exchange offer to the crowd three times. First in verse 9, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Second in verse 12, 
then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And then third in verse 14, why, what evil has he done? The answer to the first question is Barabbas. The answer to the second question stands among the most famous and chilling words in the Gospels. Crucify him. Pilate stubbornly holds out to the crowd, but cracks by verses 14 and 15. When he asks why, the rabble bay and shout all the more, crucify him. They don't even really give a reason. They just say, crucify him. The religious leaders have got what they want. They operate in the shadows, slinking from person to person, whispering falsehoods, spreading lies. They've got things this far. They don't want this to slip now. The curtain on Jesus' irreligious trial comes down in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate stands as one of the great cards of history. Mark highlights his fear of man. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd. He was a people pleaser. Pilate failed in his leadership by doing the politically correct thing. This was a travesty of justice and one of the most wicked things that has ever happened in history. Yet through it all, everybody, all the characters, everybody is putty in the hands of God. Everybody is a moving piece on the chessboard of history. Everybody is a tool to bring about the rescue that God has planned. Which brings us nicely onto our final R, the rescuer. Do you know how many words Mark records Jesus saying in verses 1 to 20? Four. Four words. It's absolute bedlam. He's being thrown from pillar to post. He's being accused of things that he hasn't done. He's receiving occasional acts of violence. He's been spat at. He's been beaten. And Mark records Jesus as saying four words. He's completely calm through it all. Do you see his words? Verse 2. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. You've said so. Jesus replies very simple in Mark's terse record. When Pilate asked him whether he was a king, he basically replied, you said it. You've got it right. He didn't say, well, you say I'm a king, but I don't say that. Jesus affirms that he is a king. And that makes this scene all the more amazing. All the more absurd, all the more vexing. The king of the universe, the king who was there at the beginning, the one who, who brought this world into existence, the king of the universe is standing before a third-rate politician and he's watching him make decisions about whether he lives or dies. The king of the universe allows a political puppet to decide his fate. Not only that, this is the longed-for Messiah, and he's being rejected by his own people. Don't miss the force of that. The very people who wanted to see the Messiah come, who wanted the Messiah to deliver them, incite the crowd to shout, crucify him. And, and as if it can be any more implausible, Jesus, a righteous man, is condemned to death, while Barabbas, a properly bad, guilty man goes free. In the face of all of that, he speaks four words. It really is, as Isaiah said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Rome, the rabble and the religious leaders, the robber and the rescuer. The best writers will give you details that impact the story in unthinkable ways and they'll help you imagine a specific person or scene so much so that you begin to feel part of the story. Here's how for us. Here's the heart application for all of us. I have two applications for us if we know Jesus and I have two applications for you if you don't. And I've summarized all four with one word and that all sounds more complicated than it is. So let's get to the heart application. Here's number one. First word, wonder. Wonder because this is what he endured for me. Paul puts it so neatly and so nicely in Galatians 2 verse 20. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. And he doesn't finish it there. He says, who loved me and gave himself for me. Just pause on those final two words for a moment. For me. This is what he did for me, for you, for all those who believe. He stood in my place. He died so that I didn't have to die. Not that kind of death. He died so that I don't have to bear the consequences of my sin. That's the gospel. And it should fill our hearts with wonder. God has saved us, not because of anything that we have done. He saved us because he loves us. Wonder. Heart application number two, expectation. Expectation that becoming more like him, becoming more like Jesus, will mean following his experience, traveling down the road he traveled down. Let me expand on that a little bit. I've been running membership classes over the past few weeks, and in the week that has just passed, we thought about living as a Christian and what it means for God to change us. We talked a bit about what change feels like, and in the material that we're using, it said, what happens to us in experiencing God's change in our lives follows the same pattern as what happened to Jesus in his death and resurrection. And then there was a question, what does this say to us about what it's like to go through this change? One of the answers that we come up with was painful. As we study and look at this section again, we should have an expectation that following Jesus will mean some kind of pain for us. In Northern Ireland, it won't mean physical persecution. It just won't. It just doesn't. But it might mean that people ignore you. It might mean that people make fun of you. It might mean that people exclude you. It might mean that people are difficult towards you in work. But we should be prepared for that because look at what Jesus went through. His suffering is our pattern and we shouldn't expect the Christian life to be a bed of roses. Nothing we experience in this life will compare to what he went through for us. So a little pain now might not be so difficult after all. If we know and love him, there should be wonder in our hearts and the expectation that sometimes it, it's just a little bit hard to follow Jesus. Two hard applications for those of you who don't, for those of us who know the Lord. Two hard applications for those of you who don't. Re Realization. This passage should make you realize 
that crowds can hold you back from following Christ. That's what happens in the story, isn't it? The religious leaders sneak around, spread falsehoods, and all of a sudden, the crowd has turned on Jesus. People who were perhaps sympathetic to him are suddenly calling for him to be crucified. crucified. Crowds make people do strange things. When a crowd is doing something, going in a certain direction, people automatically think that it's the right thing to do. Crowds so often hold people back from following Jesus. What crowd is holding you back? Your family, your office, the people in your office, the people in your school, the people in your yard. Who is holding you back from trusting in Christ? This passage should make you realize that sometimes the crowd is wrong. Everyone's against Jesus. Well, I suppose I better join in. I suppose I better shout that he's crucified. I, I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of history. The thing is, if you're in that crowd, in the crowd that's against Jesus, you will be on the wrong side of history. History is linear. It's going somewhere. It's a start and end point. And at the end point, if you're found to be in the crowd that rejected Christ, he will reject you. Which brings us to the fourth and final word for heart application, challenge. The question Pilate asks in verse 12 is the question of the ages. Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Then what shall I do with Jesus? It's the question of the ages because your answer determines where you spend eternity. What's your answer to that question tonight? That, that, that's the challenge of this section. What's your answer? What will you do with Jesus? The, the best writers will give you details that, that impact the story in unthinkable ways, and they'll help you to imagine a specific person or scene, so much so that you begin to feel part of the story. Tolkien described Gollum as dark as darkness. That's what our hearts are like. Yet if we turn and repent and believe in Christ, we're moved from darkness to light. We feel part of this story because it's our story. There's that old spiritual song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? We weren't there at the time, but it was my sin, your sin that took him there and held him there. He went to the cross to take on the story of our brokenness, all so that we might be part of his new story. What will you do with Jesus? It's a simple question. What's your answer? It's the question of the ages. It's the only question that will matter in a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand years from now. This passage is a challenge for you to think it through, to figure out where you stand before the Lord and what you're going to do about it if you're not trusting in him. That's part two then of three days that change the world. The best writers give you details that impact the story in unthinkable ways and they'll help you to imagine a specific person or scene so much so that you begin to feel part of the story and God is an author and he's given us the story of Jesus going to the cross and when we trust in him it becomes our story. Tonight we've seen the characters involved in Jesus' final morning, Rome, the robber, the rabble, the religious authorities and the rescuer. And we've seen that this story brings wonder 
an expectation for us if we know the rescuer and a realization and a challenge if you don't know him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this precious story. We thank you that we can linger on these verses which tell us so much about what Jesus endured and went through. We thank you that he bore our sins and our sorrows, that he went like a lamb to the slaughter, that he, he didn't react to anything that was done to him and took it with grace and control. We thank you that he is the king of the universe and we pray that we would all deal with that question of the ages, what then shall we do with Jesus? Lord, help us to settle that question tonight. Help, that, help us to, 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 to settle that question in our hearts, to trust him, to know him, to follow him, to believe in him. Help us to do that with the help of your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.